Hey everyone, and welcome, dear listener. My name is Philip, and I will be your guide throughout this episode of Security Headline. But I shall not walk alone today. Joining me in, on this episode is a security researcher, Ruby hacker, co-founder of Metasploit, Rumble, and a lot of other stuff that we're hopefully going to cover. It's HD Moore, of course. How are you doing today, HD? I'm doing great. Thanks, Philip. So before we jump into all this uh, tech stuff, I want to know what kind of programming made you the person you are today? How, what do you compile with? And how did you get into this tech thing? Was there any light bulb moment or uh, how did we get here? <laughs> sure thing. Yeah, as a kid, um, I would sneak into the computer labs and play with the Apple IIEs and mostly wrote a lot of like basic programming back in the day and making silly screensavers and, you know, poke and peek memory and things like that. Um, later on, I got into, you know, freaking and word dialing and all that fun stuff, like finding ways to explore telephone systems and BBSs and that whole side of things. And I really liked the idea of being able to explore this giant unknown network out there. Just the fact that from, you know, my, my bedroom, I could dial a phone line anywhere in the world and get access to some information system that I'd never seen before was amazing. And that was the beginning. Wow. That's nice. And it just snowballed from there, from over to the Yeah. I, I never really took any like programming classes or went to school really. Like I mostly dropped out of high school and came back and graduated at the last minute. So most of my programming has always been what a lot of people would laugh at. So, you know, Perl, PHP, uh, eventually Ruby. So, you know, some visual basic here and there in the early days of like AOL proggies and things like that. So none of the, not a lot of like high tech wizardry, just a lot of like really crappy code that happened to get something done just because I was playing with some technology. Nice. So kind of spaghetti coding, uh, if it works, yeah, that's very, <laughs> that's very nice. So yeah, when you Google your name, your Wikipedia article pops up and what are a really cool project that you started is Metasploit. How did that start? Um, that was an interesting time for the industry for, and this is back in early 2000s, prior to then, a lot of the exploits people used for security testing were just kind of being shared by the community. You have folks like, you know, groups like ADM and WooWoo kind of sharing exploits or they got leaked out. People would use those not just for hacking stuff on the internet, but to do actual, you know, professional security work. You still use the same toolkit. You're still going to use the same exploits that you would for, you know, for funsies that you would for your work. That's just how things worked at the time. But right around kind of early 2000s, a lot of the folks who used to publish exploits for free stopped doing it. They started commercializing it. They started wanted to, they didn't really worry about going to jail or get arrested for it. There's this big pushback against uh, public exploits, both from folks who wanted to make money from it and folks who didn't want people to share them in the first place. And so Metasploit is kind of my pushback on that, which is to say, no, we really need to have open source free exploits to use for professional and unprofessional work. Like you really need to have security tools available to do this kind of work. And the second you start making those illegal or more difficult to get or expensive, it just, it hurts everybody. And so Metasploit was not very popular back then. It was kind of the, people thought of it as a script kitty tool. The code was gross. It didn't work very well. Very small number of exploits. People told me all my stuff was terrible. You know, I, people kept trying to get me fired from my job. They DDoSed my company. They did all this oh, stuff wow. trying to basically get rid of me because I was annoying them because they didn't like what I was doing. And it wasn't just, you know, the black hats being mad that we made exploits more available. It was the big corporations saying, we don't think people should be able to publish software exploits legally. We think this should be against the law. We think you shouldn't be able to do that. And so it was funny that both the black hat hackers and the companies had the same perspective on it at the time. 
yeah, there's been like only lately a like giant shift from exploits just being posted into private forums and in private uh, groups to being put on public websites, websites such as Millworm, where they're like, okay, we're gonna list every every exploit that we get in publicly. That is what I think is amazing because then you're kind of dem- democratizing it. You're kind of allowing everyone to be part of it and. Uh, getting to play with the toys, which I think is really amazing. And uh, there, there kind of is the bug track mailing list, but you know, that isn't really a, a website where you can search on something and then you can uh, get an exploit to pay with. So w- when Metasploit started, was there any other project similar to this around or were like Metasploit kind of the first of its kind? It was the first open source project for sure. I think there is a... Um... Uh, Core Security had just launched their product Impact at the time. Canvas didn't exist yet from Unity. I think it was still, they hadn't created that yet. There's this product called Saint Exploit, which was launched in 2006 or so that basically copied most of Metasploit's exploits and just started selling them. They changed out some shell code here and there, but we looked at the code and it's pretty much identical in most cases. So there wasn't really a lot of commercial exploit tools back then. And part of it was there wasn't a strong market for it. The only people who needed them were you know, pen testers and people doing red team exercises, things like that. It wasn't like a tool used by everyday IT folks or security people. And we're trying to change that with Metasploit, trying to make a exploits kind of a more just standard tool that you'd use day to day. Like, okay, is this thing passed? Let's go try it. Like, and I think that kind of took some of the mysteriousness away from exploit development, but it also made it much more widely approachable. Like more people knew how to use them. They weren't quite as scared of them. We're trying to make exploits boring, basically. That was our whole goal. Let's make exploits a boring tool that everyone knows how to use. You know, it's crazy these days because if you look at, you know, Metasploit framework, is still huge. It's been around for like 17, 18 years now. It's it's massive. There's yep. hundreds and hundreds of people contributed to it. And the funniest thing about it for me is like in the early days of Metasploit, we're constantly getting uh, releasing exploits for folks like Microsoft platforms, uh, you know, Oracle, things like that. And if you look at where things are today, Metasploit framework is hosted on GitHub, which is owned by Microsoft. Yep. <laughs> so Microsoft <laughs> is now hosting Metasploit, which I find to be the funniest thing ever. Yeah, th- how was it in the beginning? Did you write, uh, you and your friends only wrote uh, exploits for it? Or how did you get kind of exploits for Metasploit in the beginning? Uh, two ways, really. Like, for the most part, we wrote everything. Um, we wrote as much as we possibly could. So I wrote, um, I think before Metasploit 3, I probably wrote, I don't know, half or two thirds of all the exploits myself. Oh, wow. um, I say I wrote them. I, I basically ported them from someone else's code, copied them, et cetera. We tried to credit everybody that we could. So if we took like C code and then converted that to a Metasploit module, we had to rewrite it from scratch most of the time. You had to, oftentimes you made it better too. You got the, like, more targets, more shell code options, better encoding, more reliable in some cases. So we did a lot of work to preserve other exploits and convert them into Metasploit modules. And a lot of times we wrote ones from scratch too. So it was kind of a mix of that. I think ones I wrote from scratch without anything else, probably a few, a few hundred. And the ones that were uh, copied or merged or ported or someone contributed and then we cleaned it up and then were probably the rest of them. So. But for sure, like the first 15 or so were just me. And then beyond that, we started getting other folks involved. SpoonM and Escape uh, were heavy contributors early on. They're kind of the other two people part of the project. Both of them ended up leaving the project by 2006 or so, just for different reasons. But sorry, 2009 or so for different reasons. You know, so we had kind of this three-person group for a long time, from about 2003 to 2006, uh, that wrote a lot of the exploits. And then we had a group of about 150 or so contributors that would contribute stuff in. And a lot of those folks are still, you know, people you, you probably know today, they go by different handles back then, but it's, it's crazy to see like all the names of the early Metasploit contributors, because they're all, you know, CISOs now are <laughs> running their yeah. own companies or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty crazy how all the e-sign writers are kind of moving mm-hmm. on from uh, being some kids in some basement to doing uh, really commercial stuff. I think it was one of the Cult of the Dead Cow, one of those uh, hacking group members that uh, he was this really big CISO now. It's 
some company. But did your like approach, uh, because I assume Metasploit started very small and then it just blew till this, look at it today, it's like very, very huge. Did your approach kind of change to it when it to be a like official software and more and more people started using it? Yeah, um, for the first few years, the goal behind Metasploit was to, it wasn't really about the code, it was more about pushing the, the knowledge of exploits and to make exploits more widely recognized. So we did a lot of work on shell code, a lot of work on encoding, on IDS evasion, on protocol evasion. The exploits themselves were almost secondary to that. It was what we really cared about was let's push innovation and research around exploit development. Let's make a bigger community around it. And let's make this legal and you know something that everyone can safely do. When the product got further along, our main goals were how do we make sure this thing stays stable? How do we like bring new code in and new techniques and new, new, new stuff into it without breaking all of our old stuff, right? That's the hard part. So it became more of a, just a software engineering project at that point, trying to make sure that this um, platform would be stable and fast for the long term. And that was you know much, arguably much more difficult. <laughs> yeah, I could imagine. So how was it when, when it went from just being Metasploit to being acquired by Rapid7 and, oh, now it's a real enterprise project? It was fun. because So when they bought the when they bought Metasploit, there's nothing to buy. It was a open source license that was like BSD or MIT license, oh. uh, a domain name, Metasploit.com, and that's and a trademark. And that was it. There wasn't like any product to buy. So basically, as soon as they acquired Metasploit, we had to start building a commercial product around it. And that's how we paid the bills. That's what actually paid for the development. And what still pays for the development of Metasploit today is building a commercial product, which is Metasploit Pro on that. So we found a way to keep the open source code you know, open and on the same license and keep making it better, but also build a brand new thing that kind of sits on top of it that became the product we actually sold. And that product ended up covering all of our bills, it pays for the development team, it helps a lot of stuff. Like it was good. So really thankful for our customers that were able to buy Metasploit Pro because it helps cover all the development costs and all the support of the open source project and the framework and everything else around it. How, how would like financially supporting it when you were just doing it before Rapid7, were it like just a lot of late nights coding and hacking on it or? Uh... Yeah, probably two or three hours every single day, weekends, nights, always. And then uh, a couple times a year, we go out to conferences and do training classes on it. And the training oh, classes would cover our hosting bills and things like that. So um, between training on the side and then spending every spare moment I had for many years on it, that's that's how we got there. That's, uh, that's really nice. Something you mentioned earlier in the, uh in your introduction is freaking, you got into freaking. Let's uh, jump into that topic because I think it's a very, very interesting topic. Uh, actually, one of my favorite magazines is 2600, nice. which I get I get from the post. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure I'm, uh... oh, you got it as well? Yeah. Uh... <laughs> well, let's see. It's my favorite to see. Here's from uh, 2000, from oh, wow. 1999, 94, 93. I've got all my blacklisted 1411s. So I've got all the old ones up here as well. Amazing. Uh, let's see. Yeah, this one is 1993. Oh, wow. <laughs> nice. Very nice. <laughs> Sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt. Were, were, you, were you buying them to learn freaking or? Uh... Uh, yeah, at the time you could buy them from the bookstores here or the ones that you're missing. You get your friends to send you a copy and photocopy them and stuff. But yeah, I grew up reading Blacklisted 14411, uh, 2600, nice. all online zines going to BBS is reading all the text files you can find. Nice. That's very nice to hear because the kind of the phone system has changed a lot going from analog to kind of this digital area where we have VoIP over IP and uh, everyone is talking with WhatsApp and uh, other apps. 
But one project you're involved in is Warbox. I'm not sure if I pronounced that right. Ah, yep, perfect. What what what's that? Um, so you know, growing up and you know, growing up poor, and then not having access to a lot of technology. Like anytime I had a phone line, the modem, and a computer, I was in heaven. I could dial anything. I could dial H <laughs> you know, systems of the local Target, all kinds of stuff. You found crazy stuff on the phone systems. But the hardest part was you know, dial and you wait and you wait and you wait and you dial again and keep doing that. It just took so long to find stuff. So what if you could like magically call every phone number in the US at the same time? And that's pretty much Warbox was, was how do we take the advent of voice over IP technology and then run those calls at scale and literally call every phone line in a city at the same time if you can, or hundreds at a time. But the problem then is if you're making the phone call with a VoIP system, what are you using for the modem? How do you negotiate the calls? So we threw away the modem basically. We said, we don't care about modems anymore. And this is 2007, I believe, when I started working on this project. What we cared about instead, what maybe a little later than that, um, what we care about instead is like, what's on, the, what's on the other end of the phone line? It doesn't matter if it's a modem, is it a fax machine, is it a person, is it an IVR, is it an error tone, is it a dial tone that we can dial back out of and use as, a, you know, so out, use as an out dial. So the way we did this is a combination of like, they would call it machine learning these days, but really it was just um, FFT transforms, like fast forward transforms and fingerprints. So the idea is that you use a voice over IP service to make phone calls to hundreds of lines all at the same time. You record the audio and then you analyze the audio itself to determine what was on the other end of it. Was it a busy oh, cool. tone? Was it a ring? Was it an error? And then you can group them. You say, okay, I have a pattern of fingerprint I created of this audio sample. Find me everything else in this whole city that sounds like that audio sample. And the cool thing about oh, that wow. is you found things like you can fingerprint a dial tone. So if you want to find all the out dials in a city very quickly, you say, okay, fingerprint this, this frequency and then find all those real quick. You can also say, I fingerprinted this person's voice sample, this message say, hi, you've reached so-and-so, blah, 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 blah. You can fingerprint that and find every other voice that sounds like them in the whole city. So oh, you can wow. dial their home phone number and then you can dial their cell phone number and correlate the two of them by fingerprinting the audio match. It was a lot of fun. That's really cool. <laughs> That's really cool. <laughs> So the software, I mean, unfortunately, there's a lot of laws in the U.S. that make it difficult to use that software these days. There's the first law was the eFax ruling, which says mm -hmm. if you're trying to dial a number to determine if it's a fax machine, that is now illegal. And that's because the senators kept getting fax bombed. People kept sending them mm -hmm. junk faxes all day and they got mad about it. But as a result, that actually also made it difficult to legally war dial long ranges. The second was the Something Telecommunications Act. I'm trying to remember the, the full acronym, but... That one said, you can't call old people homes, you can't call emergency services, fire departments, fire stations, police, all that with an automated dialer. And the okay. idea, and I mean, obviously you don't want to be harassing old people. You don't want to be, you know, using up emergency services or annoying your police. The problem is you don't know what the police number is to you dial it, right? So if you're yeah. dialing a big range of numbers, you don't know where anything is. So as a result, war dialing in the US is pretty difficult to do legally unless you know exactly what all those numbers are before you dial them. But if you know what they were before, you wouldn't be dialing in the first place, right? So yeah. it's... It becomes difficult to dial in the U.S. for that reason. Yeah, you don't want to stumble upon the wrong uh, target there. Uh, but that, that's really cool. Is it still, uh, are people it still is, using it? Um, the, the software itself has kind of gotten old and crusty. Like it uses Ruby on Rails and it hasn't been updated in forever. So it, the software itself doesn't work anymore, basically. I think the idea behind it, though, other people are kind of picking it up. The problem that we're running into is that legally it's really difficult to do this kind of work in the U.S., other jurisdictions, like if you're some overseas ports here, you can, you know, I switched a lot of my dialing for research outside of the U.S. after that law was passed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was dialing big chunks of Russia for fun, things like that. So cool. That's there's really definitely cool. still use cases for it. It's just, it's, you know, it's one of those cases where law has gotten in the way of, 
innovation. But I feel like that same technique of like dialing, you know, word dialing and dialing the internet is what I've been doing with scanning the internet too. So one of the projects mm. through Rap7 was scanning the whole internet and publishing all the data for everyone else to look at. So similar to like Shodan or Scans.io yeah. or Census or yeah. lots of other folks do these days, but we convinced Rap7 that they should and continue to do scanning the whole internet and give that data away for free to everybody. And it's really useful for research. So they do research papers on it. We used to find vulnerabilities. So if you try to find, like we found a bunch of vulnerabilities in UPnP software, like libupnp, like 13 different stack overflows and heap overflows. And we can quickly tell you how many machines on the internet were exposed to them because we had all that data already. So it's oh. nice, it's like a, a video recorder for the internet. We can tell you what was on the internet at a given point in time going back like five years now. And it's really cool oh, to be able wow. to go back five years ago and say, what was on the subnet? So sometimes when you see like stuff in the, you know, we're in the election season right now, like in the previous election, the 2016 election in the US, there's all the stuff about, you know, Hillary Clinton's email server. Well, it ends up Project Sonar, actually not Project Sonar at the time, but one of my other projects, Critical IO, we had scan data of Clinton's email server in our archives. We already knew it was. Oh, like, wow. That's cool. So it's kind of cool. Like when you have an archive of everything that was on the internet, it's like the Wayback Machine, but for everything else, for all the web servers, telnets, DNS, et cetera. So I think this was really fun. And so these days I kind of do the same thing, but I do that for corporate networks on inside. How was the scanning the internet? Was it using like MassScan or uh, some similar tool? Uh, ZMAP. So we contributed to ZMAP. Okay. Uh, I wrote the original, may still be the same code base, the UDP probes for ZMAP. I wrote all of those. Um, so all the UDP-based probes were our stuff, and then uh, we contribute that back, and we worked with the ZMAP team. These days, I'm actually an investor at Census, which is where a lot of the ZMAP developers went afterwards. So um, mm. I still stay in touch with those guys. They're sharp people. And then Rapid7 still does Project Sonar. But the idea is that because there's you know 4, 4 billion IPv4 addresses, but only about 3.7 billion are routable, and of those, you can take a big chunk out that aren't actually being used by anybody, the, the remaining IPs are actually pretty small. There's actually not that much space. Like computers and networks are fast enough these days that you can quickly scan the whole internet in about an hour and a half on just a regular digital ocean box for any given port or service. Oh, wow. So it's cheap. And it's like, it's like $2, like, you know, two or $3 US. So it's a really cheap way to get lots of data and to get this really neat view of the whole world at once. That's really cool. And how is it? Is it doing it port by port or uh, does it have a port um, range? It Doing it. So I think um, the way that Rap7 does it today, because everyone does it a little bit differently, uh, Census does it one way, Shodan does it a different way, Rap7 does it a different way. I think the way that Rap7 still does it is they've got a ZMAP scan that probes a single port. And then for everything that's open on that port, then they, they run a secondary check against it for things like TLS, HTTP, banners, oh. database protocols, things like that. So step one is a SIN scan and step two is do an application layer probe with that data as it's kind of queuing in. Was there any f fun things that uh, you found that you weren't suspecting? Like, uh, oh, here's a public prison system or here's a nuclear <laughs> power plant that shouldn't be <laughs> operating online. There is a lot of crazy stuff out there. I think the one that was probably the scariest was a surgical robot that was directly exposed to the internet that was being used in surgery. <laughs> it was being used for like actual it's operations strong. directly exposed to the internet and we found like the web interface thing showing like inside of a human being as it's cutting into them we're like this is no <laughs> that was probably the worst one so far jesus christ <laughs> yeah. um we contacted the company and they fixed it real quick but it was still like uh guys like this is probably the most horrifying thing we've ever seen exposed to the net <laughs> yeah that's uh... <laughs> That's that's pretty crazy. I feel like this is good. These days, Jordan's been out there doing this work for a long time. It's been great. So I feel like um, you know, it's nice that there's a lot of other companies that feel like they're able to do that. I guess so. When we started Project Sonar at Rapid Seven, I was getting a lot of legal threats then as well. People were saying, "Stop mm -hmm. scanning me." It's like, 
can you tell someone not to scan you? Like it's your IP is the internet, right? You're either part Welcome of Welcome to the internet. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, people get really mad about that. We had an entire state government tell us that they were going to like put us in jail if we didn't stop scanning their entire state. But they wouldn't tell us what their state's IP addresses were because they didn't know. But it kept getting madder and madder saying, we keep seeing alerts. We're like, what's your IP space? We'll blacklist it. And they're like, oh, but we don't know. Like they just kept getting madder and madder, not telling us anything. So we spent like an entire weekend trying to find every single IP address that maps this given state in the US just so they wouldn't try to indict us for scanning them, even though they didn't tell us what not to scan. So it's just, it's crazy out there. But I think things have gotten better since then. I feel like so many companies now scan the internet. There's lots of like really good reasons for doing so. Like the fact that you can like find vulnerabilities, done five stuff, do cool research. Like it's kind of like Metasploit in the sense that once everyone got past the initial knee jerk reaction of we think this is bad and stop. And then went, oh, okay, there's actually some benefit to it. Now people are okay with it. So I feel like, you know, my two accomplishments, if you want to call them for my career were helping make exploits more widely acceptable and helping make internet wide scanning more acceptable. Yeah. It's kind of also a bit, uh, because I remember like a couple of years ago, people were just joking about, yeah, you're going to scan the internet. Okay. There's going to take two months or it's going to take a year. <laughs> and now it's like, okay, le let me install mass scan on this, uh, digital ocean service and I'll do it in a couple of hours. So that's really cool to see kind of how the development has gone there. So that's, uh, that's awesome. So you kind of mentioned rumble a bit. What is that? Give me some juicy details of what you guys are doing. <laughs> so the like my current work these days is is building this thing called Rumble Network Discovery, and the idea is that mm -hmm. um, most companies don't know what they have inside their network, or if they if they think they know what they have, it may be wrong. So what we try to do instead is provide them tools and use to do internet like intranet wide scanning, everything on the inside of the corporate network, quickly find it all, classify it, fingerprint, correlate it, track it as assets move around. And we do a lot of like really interesting stuff on the security side, but not for security reasons. So it's like you built an entire bone scanning engine, but instead of caring mm -hmm. about vulnerabilities, you just cared about fingerprinting, Mac address discovery, correlation, user ID, like unique ID tracking, things like that. So we have a scan engine that's written from scratch. It's all written in Go. Uh, you can deploy agents anywhere that you want. They run on you know, FreeBSD, OpenBSD, Raspberry Pis, Windows, Mac, cool. et cetera. The agents can scan pretty fast up to 75,000, 100,000 packs per second per agent. And you can cover like you know, internal slash eights really quickly. You want to scan all of 10? Sure. 192 and Sure. Let's do that real quick. And so we've got customers who scan millions of assets every day internally. So we've moved from, you know, from my perspective, I spent a lot of time looking at what was exposed to the internet. Now I'm looking at what's actually being exposed to the intranets and all the internal lands and stuff and helping folks fingerprint, classify, track, monitor, query, all that stuff. So we really focused just on asset inventory and not security. We're not trying to tell you what your vulnerabilities are. We're just trying to tell you that this thing is a smart TV. This thing's a toaster. This is the Windows server. That's it. It's, 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 it's a really boring output of a lot of really cool research. So we find ways, like we can find the Mac address of a device 15 different ways remotely across the internet. We can leak information out of things like SMB version three pre-authentication signatures. If you scan a subnet full of Windows machines and they all have the firewall enabled, we can still often get the Mac address by finding a printer in the same network and then dumping all the Mac addresses out of the ARP cache of the printer. <laughs> so we do all this stuff that's like kind of sneaky behind the scenes to build up <laughs> fingerprint stuff. So it's, it's almost like a pen test, almost like a security tool, but it does these things in a really safe way. And the output really is just a big list of systems. That's really cool to using kind of pen testing techniques to write extra features and add-ons. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's fun though. I feel like I get to do all the same kind of research I would do in the security space, but the goal really is just to help people figure out what's on the network. Cool. Do you do any exploit development uh, personally right uh, now? Once or... here, but I haven't done like an actual like memory corruption bug in at least a year or two. Hmm. 
But do, doing Metasploit, uh, doing exploit development for uh, such a long time, don't you kind of get uh, get tired of it after a while, or is it how do you kind of keep flame going, so to say? Um, we find the parts you like, right? So I think the things I really liked about exploit development were finding ways to leak information and finding ways to use that information to make the exploits really reliable. I feel like the you know all the crazy ROP chain stuff, yeah, I can do it, but it's not fun. And these days with all the exploit mitigations, it's way harder to build reliable exploits. So what yeah, I really yeah. realized I liked about Metasploit was a discovery aspect. I liked finding information about things that was available off the network. And I liked um, information leaks that tell you enough stuff that you can then build the next part of the attack. So I feel like those two things are really the, the thing I enjoyed the best. So I feel like I'm still doing that. I feel like with internet-wide scanning, with Rumble, I'm still basically getting to do all the information leak work I was doing before, but I'm just not doing the exploit part. Oh, that's cool. And uh, why, why, why are you writing it in Go? Because it's pretty new. And uh, was there like a trial and error and uh, testing, learning by doing testing and seeing what's performing best? Or uh, oh, yeah, why sure. have you adopted Go? Um, so I went back to my early days of writing Perl. They all look like basic. In my early days of writing Ruby, it all looked like Perl. And my early days of Go <laughs> now all look like Ruby. So <laughs> it kind of depends. it's just how it works. You have to, have to kind of get used to the language. But I feel like Go is, I feel like has all the benefits of being a very boring language. Like there's backwards compatibility. Okay. It doesn't change very often. It's really um, fairly easy to make reliable software. If it compiles, it's probably going to be good. Like it's, it makes it harder to shoot yourself in the foot in a lot of ways. Still lots of gotchas, like with panics and uh, deadlocks, things like that with channels. But I feel like Go is not the prettiest language, but it's it's kind of set and forget. Once something works, it's probably going to keep working. Like it makes it much easier to build software. And the thing I, I really enjoy the most about Go and what I didn't like so much about uh, Perl and Ruby was the packaging. If you actually want to ship software, like give mm -hmm. someone a binary, yeah. trying to sh Trying to install Metasploit is painful. Like it's gotten to the point now that trying to install all the right gems or the right versions with the right stuff, with the right Ruby version, like with the right lib readline library, it was such a headache for us on the packaging side. Same thing with Perl too. Like it was very difficult to build a binary that would run on Windows and every version of Windows with the same output just because of, mm -hmm. you know, Visual C runtime library differences, things like that. The thing that's wonderful about Go is that you build one binary and you're done. It runs on almost anything. And as long as you don't use anything related to C Go, you don't um, link to any kind of C libraries and, you know, don't go out of your way to do things that are bad. Uh, generally, you're C and stuff like that. Yeah, so. your binaries are, are solid and they run on anything, which is great. So like, the problem with that, though, is that for Rumble, we don't use libpcap as a result. So every platform mm. that we do raw socket stuff, we had to rewrite libpcap from basically scratch. We have to do our own BPF stuff. We have to do our own uh, <laughs> raw socket encapsulation, our own DLT implementations. So that's one of the trade-offs, though. The good news is we don't have to depend on libpcap. The side is that for every platform we support, we have to build our own libpcap-like interfaces for the raw socket layer or the BPF layer. Oh, nice. That's a bit of a project there, I could uh, imagine. It's worth it. It's so much worth it to have a single binary that runs on libc, dietc, euclibc, raspberry pis. Like the fun thing about Rumble is you can break into like mm -hmm. a, a PoE IP camera and then put the Rumble binary on it and then scan someone's network from their camera. <laughs> that's nice, that's nice. Hacked by camera. Oh, that's really cool. How, how is the learning curve of uh, starting with Go? Is it kind of a steep learning curve or uh, is it hard or? Uh... I think if you're coming from Python or Ruby, it's not that it's hard, it's that it's ugly. It's like, you want to be able to do like the mm -hmm. easy mode of like, okay, I want to do a map. I want to do this, I want to do that. And with Go, it's very um, explicit. Like every error has to be handled with an if statement. Like um, there's ways around that, but for the most part, you have to be very 
a lot of it feels redundant. It feels like you're writing the same code again and again and again sometimes because there's not generics, because there's not um, error classes that, you know, there's a lot of things about it that make it a little bit tricky. You can get really close to those things if you really try. But for the most part, you just get used to writing boring code. And then one of the things I enjoy the most about Go is that it, it doesn't care what you want to format your code as. All your code gets formatted the same way no matter what. You have no you have no choice about how your code gets formatted. As soon as you write your code, you hit save in your editor, it reformats your code the way that's supposed to be formatted, and that's it. You have no no input into formatting anymore. It's there's no tabs versus spaces debate. There's no multi-len if statements. It's yeah. So as long as you're okay with the language being very opinionated about how it's structured, it's okay. For me, it was like I would rather not think about that. I just want to write the functionality and move on with my life. I don't want to spend all my time like writing the perfectly indented comment that's like 10 layers deep. I'd rather just like write my code and move on. So I feel like yeah. the, the learning curve was, you know, there's definitely a learning curve for sure. But what was harder for me was getting used to having to repeat my code more often than I would with Ruby and having to do very explicit error handling every step of the way. But once I got past that, these days I don't mind it. It's been about three years of writing Go for me. And I definitely feel like I would still prefer to write Go than anything else these days just because of having the ability to generate a static binary and not have to worry about dependencies, make it very easy to ship software. Nice. So you would recommend it to someone that maybe comes from a more high-level uh, programming background? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's, it looks a little bit intimidating at first, but it's not Rust. It's, you can actually figure it out. Like Rust is insane. I wouldn't use Rust because it's horrible and it's painful and it wants to like break you down and rebuild you so that you think in Rust-like ways. Go is not like that. Go is basically Java that's a little bit less ugly. It's not that bad. So as long as you're okay with dealing with an ugly language that isn't you know, the prettiest thing in the world that requires a little bit of repetition here and there, it's really, really good. And the benefits are definitely worth it from my perspective. The thing that really sells me on Go is how fast the compiler is. That's the thing that nothing else can touch these days. You can, I mean, for the amount of code that like we built in Rumble, we use, I think like our, our IDE, the Go, the Go language server when we're compiling Rumble, we'll often use 30 gigs of RAM just to keep track of all the code and memory, <laughs> but the actual compile itself only takes about five seconds. So we're oh, compared wow. to like, if you're trying to compile something in Rust or you're trying to like, you know, do a JIT for Ruby with Truffle or Growl VM or something like that, it's just so much faster to build your code. And those cycles of actually like build, test, build, test, go way faster in Go than they, was, than they do with something like Rust. So I do feel like even though Go definitely has this word that's not perfect and it's boring and it's ugly and it's you know, has a lot of repetition, it's actually a much better long-term language for you because I want, I, want, I want to focus on delivering what I'm working on, not the language itself. Yeah, totally. I was spent the entire day doing uh, fixing some bugs in Rust and it's just some things are really, really terrible. And also like if you compile it without the cache, it's like takes a couple of minutes to compile it. So I, I just put, up, uh, put on the compiler, then go get coffee, then go to the bathroom <laughs> and fix all the things. And <laughs> then I come back and hopefully it doesn't break. <laughs> Yeah, so, that's yeah. the hard part. I mean, I feel like when you start adding those delays to it, like humans only have so much attention span. If you have to, if you ever get to the point that you have to take a break and do something else and come back to your code again, you lose something. You lose the ability to quickly iterate. You lose your train of thought. You, it's hard to, it's hard to keep the same speed you're going. So if I, I feel like because the compiler of Go is so fast, that lets me keep writing code quickly. Whereas if I was trying to use something oh, like cool. Rust, it may be the most amazing code, like type safe, memory layer, bare metal, most amazing Rust code ever, but it would take me 10 years to build it. Yeah. Yeah, the learning curve is extremely steep. Uh, how, how does it go work with uh, like dependencies and stuff like that? Does it have some, uh, if, if you want to find a dependency that does something, how do you do it? Do you go to GitHub and search for it or how do you find the stuff? That's a good question. I, mostly you try to search for Go space something on Google and then you see what comes back and then you get mad because the word Go is so hard to search for. 
<laughs> like, it's actually difficult to discover dependencies, I think. Um, the good news though is like, you don't have to use as many dependencies. The standard library is already pretty feature packed. Um, oh, nice. It's actually not bad. Like for, if you want to build a whole web application framework, it's already built in standard lib. You've got template libraries, you've got, you know, web servers, TLS, Let's Encrypt, Acme automation. It's all already oh, built in language. If you wanted to like make a web server that automatically gets its own TLS certificate that delivers a web page that compiles a template, like it's like 20 lines ago and it's basically already built in these days to standard lib. So wow. make it very easy to do really hard <laughs> stuff. And you can static compile the binary, ship it across the world and run on a Raspberry Pi. And it just works all in about 10 seconds. So it makes it very quickly to do complicated things fast without having to depend on this massive dependency tree of stuff. Like that's what I absolutely hated about Ruby was having so many dependencies in Metasploit. Like the fact that we had hundreds of gems, they're all sub chains of dependencies. you still end up with that sometimes in Go. Like you'll include one dependency that the developer included five other ones and five other ones, five other ones, and it gets silly again. Yeah. For the most part, I think Go is a little bit the general mindset of Go developers is that you don't add a dependency unless you actually need it. And you try to avoid adding dependencies for like left pad and things like that. Like you don't, you don't add it unless there's like a substantial amount of code. And if what's, what's more common though, is that if you really need just this one piece of this one library, you go vendor that chunk of the library directly into your code base. You just copy and paste it and call it done. You don't worry about depending nice. on it. You just nice. actually add it to your code and go, which I feel like is better long-term. The problem though, is you have a lot of like, Sometimes you end up with a bunch of like obsolete chunks of third-party libraries hanging around your code base, but it's not too yeah. bad. That's very nice. So you don't jump into the dependency track where you have to keep all the dependencies up to date and uh, and yeah. stuff like that. There's definitely still some of that. You still have to deal with like, so Go modules are okay. There's definitely some real problems with like version two versioning on. And some of the dependency management, like once a week I fight with a dependency loop someplace with one of the dependencies we use. But, you know, it's, it's definitely better than Ruby. Nice, nice. I think it's a bit, you know, Python and both uh, Rust have this like kind of public, they have both package manager and like public web pages where uh, you can search on dependencies. I think it's a bit curious that, you know, someone hasn't put up some kind of website that index all the, the Go uh, libraries. Uh, there's, or maybe, there's maybe someone already has that. Yeah, this Go package is the one that's out now. It's like package.dev or something, but it's a lot of people don't like it. So uh, Google created a, kind of a package front end. So whenever you publish a package with Go, uh, it'll often end up with this documentation automatically, automatically indexed by this Go package index. So you can kind of search that and that kind of works okay. The problem is like, it's it's only hosted by one company and I don't know, it, yeah, uh, it's not the most universally loved thing. The problem, the difference that you find out with like Go versus Rust or Python or even Ruby is that there's not like one central repo for anything. It's all kind of scattered across oh. the map. So it's not like every package is on GitHub, every documentation isn't on a certain site. It's kind of like, Everybody does it a little bit differently. And as a result, there's less consistency for sure. But the benefit though, is that you just don't need as many dependencies to start with. What do you think of kind of the documentation of Go? Because, you know, often new languages, they lack uh, documentation because of the immaturity. Do you have any problems uh, finding documentations for functions or stuff like that? Um, a little bit. I mean, the most of the Go uh, static checkers and type tools and stuff will complain if you don't add comments to your functions properly. So for the most part, it's not too bad. I think um, at least half the time though, it makes more sense to look at the code than the documentation. So generally Go functions stay pretty small. So you're, you're not looking at like a thousand line function, you're looking at like 30 or 40 lines. You just have to figure out how that gets used by everything else. So it's not too mm -hmm. bad. I feel like um, documentation is useful, but definitely less relevant than um, other platforms where you've got really complicated methods or objects. I feel like Go is, each component of it is full enough that it's pretty easy to understand by itself. Nice. 
that's how you uh, how you want it clean and simple so let's jump into uh, workflow how does your workflow look like your uh, when you're gonna boot up your computer and write the script how do you do it oh man i'm, I'm embarrassed these days like i use windows and like visual studio code <laughs> like, a, like a chump but you know it works it's kind of just being pragmatic about stuff like Every year or so, I'll switch over to a Linux laptop for a little while and play with it. I'll switch back to Vim. I'll switch to Sublime or a Nirvana Editor or try GoLand or something like that. But, you know, end of the day, just stick with what makes you fast. So whatever works for you, whether that's, you know, Sublime or whether that's Visual Studio Code or Emacs, like just find what works and go with it. For me, it's like I still use Outlook for email because everything else is too slow. Like I probably respond to 300 emails a day and trying to do that in Gmail is just painful. There's no quick way to get there. Like I'm doing support cases, I'm doing contract procurement, sales, dev, research. Like you need the tools that work the best, even if they're not open source, even if they're not the, the best ones in the world, the prettiest in the world, you kind of pick what works. So I've, I've really settled on like <laughs> Outlook, Microsoft Office and like Visual Studio Code, sadly enough these days. I still use a lot of Linux boxes for testing, for infrastructure, things like that. But for the most part, one, of course, great thing about Go is it's cross-language or cross-platform. So, and I really try to focus on monolithic development. I hate having to go chase down about a thousand different repositories. And then the, one of the biggest headaches with having a multi-repo dev environment is if you mm -hmm. depend on pushing a tag upstream and pulling that down someplace else, and then GitHub goes offline like it randomly does every time I do a release, then like, oh, I can't pull my dependency, but it's right there. But it, uh, So it, it's nice yeah. to have, like, I feel like monorepos are really helpful, especially with small dev teams, just to keep your head around all of, all of what's going on in one spot. So it's very focused on, you know, VS Code, monorepo. I run Bash on Windows. I don't use PowerShell or Command Shell. I just do all my scripting in Bash still. So it's kind of a weird hybrid mongrel environment, but it works for me. That's very nice to hear that you uh, developed that. So yeah, let's jump into a segment I call quick questions. So what is your favorite drink? Uh, coffee, definitely. <laughs> if I look at what I drink the most of every day, it's probably like nine cups of coffee every day. That, that's what I drink. As far as alcohol though, um, it depends on the day. I mean, I like sour Belgian beers. I like champagne. Oh, nice. uh, I like red wine. So I'm not that picky about it. That's nice. Uh, I, I think I, I get a bit too stuck to coffee sometimes. So I'll sometimes do like a week without coffee and... Uh, How do you survive? Kind of, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> sometimes I feel I don't. <laughs> yeah, cheers. <laughs> nice. What is your favorite outside activity? Um, these days I run and swim. So oh, nice. Like Hiking is fun too, but the problem, like living in a dense city with COVID and quarantine, like I end up having to run around with this giant like mask on the entire time. Like I have a big, normally I've got bad allergies. So when I run, I wear a mask anyways. So COVID was great. It's like, Hey, look, now I'm now no one gives me a weird look for wearing a mask. I just run anyway. So yeah. yeah. So hiking, running, swimming. Can you still swim outside uh, or is this too cold? Um, yeah, I live very close to like a natural springs. So I just, oh, I go nice. for a run around the lake and I just jump in the swim, the, the lake, the oh springs God. afterwards. Then you have to peel the leeches off you, which is less fun. So I, I got a leech, <laughs> infected leech bite about two months ago. That was less fun. That's nice. <laughs> when do you feel the most happy in your week? When are you kind of peaking on happiness? Um, really, I think the day after shipping code when customers actually get a chance to look at it and they say really nice things about it i think that makes me happiest like when i did a bunch of work and then i got some sleep and then the next day i'm like ah, okay the hard part's done and they actually oh i really like this thing I'm like oh thank god this is this is a huge pain in my ass i'm glad you like it no one hates me yeah that's <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like it when like the stuff i work on people actually enjoy and like that's i think what makes me happy yeah the positive uh, reinforcements really 
it's it's really good for you i think what's your favorite song or band oh man that's hard uh i don't know i'm my my taste in music is kind of stuck in the early 90s still it's like came fdm and nwa and easy e and uh, nine oh, okay. industrial and like early gangster rap mostly oh yeah that's nice the kind of old school stuff how do you do package management how do you make sure that uh, all your system stays up to date and happy auto update everything and never look back i mean it breaks randomly but you know it's kind of the daily pain you gotta apply an update every single day every way you possibly can just get it done as fast as you can and move on i feel like you know once a week you lose a day to something breaking and then but it's better than being totally out of date and then having to spend a month later on so i feel like you just you, you kind of take your medicine up front on this stuff. You you force updates as fast as you can on every system you use always. Oh. What's your favorite IRC client? Yeah, again, I'm like, I feel embarrassed about this because I, you know, grew up using like, you know, RC and all that stuff and BitchX and those tools and uh, Telnet sometimes. Like when you're, you know, connecting from a government server to an IRC network to brag about your vhost because you're coming from a gov <laughs> vhost. <laughs> <laughs> then you use Telnet, right? <laughs> no, so that's an older reference. These days I use IRC Cloud as a wrapper, not just for IRC, but also for Slack. So the good thing about that is mm -hmm. I can put like all those like 300 Slacks that you get invited to, you can put them all into one client and have them all like in one tab on your browser. So I stick all my oh. Slacks into one IRC Cloud tab and all my IRC channels and all my IRC networks. So I'm on like five IRC networks, three different NICs, and then I've got like 10 different Slack channels or Slack networks and all those channels all in one tab under IRC cloud and I give them $5 a year and they're great. But how does it keep track on like all the channels? Is it just one big mess or is it filtered on latest uh, message? It's filtered, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's just one big side navigation of a vertical navigation of all your channels across all your networks in one place. So the cool thing is like, you'll see an activity alert, like, okay, this Slack of this channel has an alert and this other Slack and this IRC channel and this other IRC channel. So it's cool because you can see it all in one spot. And so anything that's oh, not like cool. my day-to-day -day work Slack, I put all those into IRC cloud and give them money because they're great. Oh, that's nice. I, I never heard about that. I'm, I'm totally gonna check that it's out. Saving uh, so much time. Like, uh, yeah, so I really recommend if you have a ton of Slacks and you're trying to keep track of them all and you use IRC, then IRC cloud is the best thing ever. Yeah, because now I just have, uh, I have a lot of like Tmax windows. So I have, uh, I found this, someone wrote this like the Slack CLI tool that is like IRC, but it's, yeah, it's in the terminal. It's also written in Golang. And okay. it works, uh, it works really good. So I can, I just keep everything in different, uh, like Tmux sessions. And then I, uh, so everything oh, cool. is a bit of a mess right now, but uh, <laughs> hopefully. I'll One thing I like about uh, RT Cloud as well is that um, they've got a really good mobile phone client too. And so if you're like on the road or walking around someplace, you can open up your RC, your RC Cloud application and then see all your channels and respond to people and stuff. So I definitely miss using like a real RC client and a terminal for it, but this definitely makes it easy. Nice. And does it like, uh, it caches all the, the messages or? Uh, yeah, so you oh, have backlog nice. in each channel. You can search it. They'll let you download your logs. You can then delete your account really quickly. So once a year, I just delete my entire account and recreate it just to make sure there's less stuff out there. But they, they're they very transparent about it all. I mean, the downside, of course, you're giving some company all your text chats for all these different networks but yeah hopefully they're being responsible about it yeah hopefully hopefully <laughs> i've uh, given up on privacy if i care about privacy it's signal these days i don't use if anything that has to be secret i don't do it on rc or slack it's got to be signal i kind of like recently very radically changed my mind about privacy i was always been very privacy oriented for several years but now I kind of feel like I, I should be always privacy oriented, but I also should not be stressed about uh, not being privacy oriented. 
because sometimes you know not being privacy oriented makes you very stressful and yeah i learned to deal with that as uh, as another thing that sounds because, healthier <laughs> yeah yeah because you know the it's really it really gets you if you're actually like worrying about it and uh, it actually takes energy from you and uh, so I think that's the bad part, uh, or one of the bad parts with it. Uh, and all it takes is one screw up and everything goes to hell, right? All you have to do is like connect to the wrong client with the wrong system, with the wrong proxy. And all of a sudden, everything you've done for your privacy goes out the window. I feel like it's so fragile to keep your privacy. Yes, it just takes one fuck up, one fuck up. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. So when was the last time you read the really good e-sign or a, a really good like proof of concept exploit? Uh, man, like not that long ago. I'm trying to remember which one offhand. Um, let me pull up my history real quick. I'm trying to remember which one I was just looking at. Um, there's been like, there's just been a lot of really amazing vulnerability uh, write-ups lately. And I'm trying to remember which one is the, the most recent one I looked into that was amazing. But I love like the really super long chains of bugs, like the way that folks just keep building up like, you know, better and better exploits with taking these unrelated small bits of information. Let's see, I think which one was looking at most recently. Uh, do, 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 do. It's, it's somewhere back in history, but like I was looking into the vCenter vulnerability recently. I was looking into a couple other ones. Some friends were looking into the recent um, IPv6 router advertisement bug about how to exploit that. All the Apache struts OGNL stuff has been insane. Like I still can't believe like they haven't just rewritten the language at this point. It's so bad that they keep getting new threats bug. And all those yeah. reps are amazing because they're just like, every time they try to find some way to like do whitelist, like whitelisting or sorry, black, like block certain things that are bad. Someone finds a way around it because they're silly language. So it's been amazing. Yeah. The, the third things are, uh, are really remarkable. I found, uh, I was on a pen test a while ago and then I, I found some, uh, some box that was uh, running some uh, vulnerable uh, patchy stress application. And it was very funny that like the application was running on some like high privilege user. And once I got access, I did some privilege escalation and then was able to root. And then when I got to root, I see like all the other applications are like very heavily sandboxed and they're running SE Linux with really strict policies. And they're like fucked up once. They didn't like uh, run SE Linux on the Apache struts. And <laughs> that was it. <laughs> yeah, that's all it takes. I mean, that's the, the good and bad part about security. It's really nice to be on the red team because all you need is one mistake to get in. And it really sucks to be in the blue team because all they need is one mistake to get in. <laughs> so it's tough for sure. But yeah, I feel like there's lots of really cool research happening these days. I feel like um, all the deserialization bugs, both the you know um, Java stuff with uh, RMI, um, there's different ways to exploit RMI stuff, all the .NET serialization, like there's a lot of like really amazing work happening in that space too. And I really love bug bounty write-ups because I feel like bug bounties have kind of like opened the floodgates to like the rest of the world to get into vulnerability and hacking. Like when I was a kid, I would have loved to have bug bounties because like what I'm allowed to like just hack all these random companies without asking them permission first. Oh yeah, this is amazing. Like I, I, I'm really looking forward to the next generation coming out from the bug bounty scene because I feel like these are folks who like cut their teeth on hacking multinationals like from an early age. And I'm just amazed at like the amount of research and the amount of cool stuff coming out of those folks. Yeah, and they're making a, a lot of money doing that as well. They're like, even better, on, right? Yeah, on Instagram and stuff like that. They're like uh, showing off Ferraris and Lamborghinis and uh, all these. Uh, yeah, they're making a shitload of money doing it. Uh, it's probably uh, still a good deal for the companies too. They're still getting better work than if they, you know, they couldn't afford to hire that many people otherwise. So it's, I think it's a good use of money in a lot of cases too. Yeah, yeah, totally. It also kind of gives you 
kind of a legitimate way to look at certain IP blocks because they have a bug bounty uh, up and going that you can blame on if uh, anyone else. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I just like how many different areas of research are happening. Like, it's not just the recon and the OSN side that's being kind of pushed up by bug bounty work. It's also the um, exploitation, the bug chaining work, uh, proof of escalation stuff. A lot of really neat work around, like people are finding vulnerabilities in open source projects that are being used by these companies. And then a lot of zero days coming out of it as well. Like a lot of the, all the image magic bugs being used by image conversions. Oh, um, yeah. Those bugs are being like mass exploited by bug bounty people before they're disclosed. So they only, the, those the image tragic bugs were actually disclosed by a bunch of vendors that all had bug bounty programs that got sick of the same researchers hacking all their stuff for the same bugs that hadn't been published yet. And so the, the vendors actually leaked that bug because they're being hacked with it by the bug bounty folk, which I thought was the most amazing thing ever that a bunch of like software vendors are the ones who actually dumping zero day and another software package because they're getting hacked by the bug bounty system. Like it was just crazy how it all worked out, but it was, it's just cool to see how it all works. Yeah. That's, uh, I think just the encouragement of like, Hey, you can, uh, you, you can still publish your stuff, but, uh, you know, if you do it through the like official, uh, software platform, you actually give them like, uh, I don't know what the deadline normally is. I guess it's like two weeks or something before they disclose it. So yeah, there you actually give them a chance to, to, to patch it. I think it's cool what the, the Google zero project, uh, is doing because they're just gonna pick a random target and then do research and then like hey if you don't acknowledge this vulnerability within two weeks we're still gonna dump it and uh, that's gonna be uh, so i think it's good that uh, they're putting pressure on the software vendors to actually you know give a shit about yeah, okay. what people are uh, reporting so yeah so what does the future hold for you what are you kind of most excited about sleep these days like uh i've been running kind of this uh small company for about two years and i'm just starting to hire more people as of this month so it's good to finally have a bigger team and to be able to nice. upload a little bit uh but i really like what i'm doing i like doing research i like uh being able to use that research to do something useful with it like do inventory and things like that i think there's a lot of fun stuff ahead so that's it um hopefully be able to keep doing research and keep kind of playing with stuff i like playing with and finding ways to fingerprint things better and find ways to leak secondary interfaces and do cool correlation and topology analysis and all kind of fun stuff. So I just get excited about networking and information leaks these days. That's nice. Oh, you started the Rumble yourself as an entrepreneurial project. Yeah, oh, uh, cool. scratch two years ago and been basically running it by myself for about two years. And then it wasn't until we've got about 125 customers now. We've got about 3,000 right. users. So nice. um, we're, we're paying the bills, which is nice. So yay, you can actually like, you know, I can pay the rent. That's, that's all is good. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but it took a long time to get here too. So it's very nice to actually have a, a real company and uh, start to bring, you know, build the team up. Wow, that's really amazing that you've done that. Do you have any advice for people that, uh, that want to go the same route? Any like traps you should avoid? Um, I mean, the big one is, you know, uh, there's no, no, there's no, there's no good replacement for just doing it. Like you just have to start doing the work. Like you don't, I spent a really long time agonizing over whether I knew enough to be able to do this and whether I understood what I was doing, whether I was just totally like, I knew nothing about contracts or procurement or RFPs or that kind of side of things or sales really. It wasn't until I really just, just started doing the work and figuring out what I had to learn that it was, I, I figured it out. So I feel like you know, the, the best way to learn something is just to start doing it as soon as you possibly can. Yeah, it's a bit, you can always uh, almost relate it to security work where you, you sit with a problem and then you don't, uh, you don't stop until you're finished. Basically, yeah. just uh, try different things and nothing is working and then you scream and uh, <laughs> try something else. <laughs> yeah. 
I can, I can usually tell when I'm learning something because my brain hates me. It's like, this sucks. This is frustrating. I don't want to do this anymore. I hate this so much. Like, oh, right now I'm learning something. My brain really doesn't want to learn anymore. And I can tell when I get frustrated that that's my brain's way of saying, damn it, I'm having to learn something. So <laughs> it's been good though. I feel like um, it's a good indication that I'm trying to learn new stuff and kind of get beyond my comfort zone. It's really easy to kind of like stay in your wheelhouse, I guess, in security. Like if you you know, learn how to do one thing really well. You kind of want to stay in that space, but it's much harder to kind of go outside that and keep pushing yourself to keep doing new things all the time. And a lot of like the non-security related stuff out there, like, you know, RFPs, contracts, legal stuff, all that kind of junk is actually also really helpful for security too. When you start going into it, you're like, oh, wow, now that I know how this works, I can understand this part better. Or so it all kind of interconnects at the end of the day. You can't really silo yourself into one portion of business, whether that's technology or sales or marketing, you kind of have to do a little bit of everything to really understand the big picture. Yeah, totally, totally. Is there anything that we have forgotten that you want to highlight? Oh, no, I just want to say thank you very much for the invitation. It's been uh, great chatting today. Yeah, likewise. Uh, it's uh, always fun to talk with someone that has uh, gone through freaking and the telephone system. And uh... <laughs> We're dying breed for sure. <laughs> Isn't it unusual that like you had this entire peak of people that were really into freaking when the, the telephone system was analog and then when it all went digital, like, is there people doing SIP research right now? Is there people actually hacking VoIP system? It seems to be a big lack of that. Yeah, it seemed like it peaked about um, five years ago, 10 years ago or so was kind of the most VoIP SIP stuff. And then no one seems to care that much anymore. I don't know. I think um, back then the only network was the phone system. And now that we've got the internet and Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and you know, all the crazy stuff out there like LoRaWAN these days, like there's many other avenues to go explore and the phone systems are just boring as a result. Yeah, maybe it will change and uh, maybe it will not, but. Uh... Yeah. Well, there's cool work happening on like the 5G side, the LTE side, like all the telecom network research has been really amazing to watch. Um, so I feel like that's kind of the space to really keep an eye on, like, uh, you know, being able to decrypt people's phone calls some, by some of the recent work in that space. It's kind of cool, like, the telecommunication research has gone from, you know, the wired side uh, switch hacking to now, like, the actual towers themselves and the RF frequencies, which is really neat. There's some really cool German people that are hacking, hacking the, like, Iridium satellite, like weather satellites oh, okay. that are uh, monitoring weather around and they're, like, uh, intercepting the signals and uh, stuff like that. So I think that, yeah, there is a lot of uh, cool things going on, certainly. Definitely. Well, um, yeah, it's always fun to watch the, the CCC talks every year and stuff. So looking forward to hopefully seeing that next time. Yeah, totally. Any final closing words before we part ways? Uh, no, just, um, you know, thanks again for having me on and it's been great catching up and, you know, yeah, it's an amazing world out there. I'm really excited for it. Totally, totally amazing. All right. Thank you so much for joining, uh, joining me on this episode. Uh, I had a blast and it's, I know a lot of things more about Metasploit now and a lot of things. <laughs> so I've <laughs> certainly learned some things. I'm sure our listeners also learned some things. So thank you so much for taking the time with me today and enjoy the rest of your day. Oh, thank you, you too. Have a good night.